0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Appreciations and Criticisms of the Works of Charles Dickens by G. K. Chesterton. Section 2. Introduction. Part 3. Subheading Little Dorrit. In the time of the decline and death of Dickens, and even more strongly after it, there arose a school of criticism which substantially maintained that a man wrote better when he was ill. It was some such sentiment as this that made Mr. George Gissing, that able writer, come near to contending that Little Dorrit is Dickens' best book. It was the principle of his philosophy to maintain, I know not why, that a man was more likely to perceive the truth when in low spirits than when in high spirits reprinted pieces the three articles on sunday of which i speak are almost the last expression of an articulate sort of english literature of the ancient and existing morality of the english people it is always asserted that puritanism came in with the seventeenth century and thoroughly soaked and absorbed the english we are now it is constantly said an incurably puritanic people Personally, I have my doubts about this. I shall not refuse to admit to the Puritans that they conquered and crushed the English people, but I do not think that they ever transformed it. My doubt is chiefly derived from three historical facts. First, that England was never so richly and recognizably English as in the Shakespearean age before the Puritan had appeared. Second, that ever since he did appear, There has been a long unbroken line of brilliant and typical englishmen who belonged to the shakespearean and not the puritanic tradition dryden johnson wilkes fox nelson were hardly puritans and third that the real rise of a new cold and illiberal morality in these matters seems to me to have occurred in the time of queen victoria and not of queen elizabeth all things considered it's likely that future historians will say that the Puritans first really triumphed in the 20th century, and that Dickens was the last cry of merry England. And about these additional miscellaneous and even inferior works of Dickens, there is moreover another use and fascination which all Dickensians will understand, which, after a manner, is not for the profane. All who love Dickens have a strange sense that he is really inexhaustible, It is this fantastic infinity that divides him from the strongest the healthiest romantic artists of a later day from stevenson for example i have read treasure island twenty times nevertheless i know it but i do not really feel as if i knew all pickwick as i have not so much read it twenty times as read in it a million times and it almost seemed as if i always read something new WE OF THE TRUE FAITH LOOK AT EACH OTHER AND UNDERSTAND. YES, OUR MASTER WAS A MAGICIAN. I BELIEVE THE BOOKS ARE ALIVE. I BELIEVE THAT LEAVES STILL GROW IN THEM, AS LEAVES GROW ON THE TREES. I BELIEVE THAT THIS FAIRY LIBRARY FLOURISHES AND INCREASES LIKE A FAIRY FOREST. BUT THE WORLD IS LISTENING TO US, AND WE WILL PUT OUR HAND UPON OUR MOUTH. OUR MUTUAL FRIEND ONE THING AT LEAST SEEMS CERTAIN. Dickens may or may not have been socialist in his tendencies, one might quote on the affirmative side his satire against Mr. Podsnap, who thought centralization unEnglish. One might quote in reply the fact that he satirized quite as unmercifully state and municipal officials of the most modern type. But there is one condition of affairs which Dickens would certainly have detested and denounced, and that is the condition in which we actually stand today. At this moment, It is vain to discuss whether Socialism will be a selling of men's liberty for bread. The men have already sold the liberty, only they have not yet got the bread. A most incessant and exacting interference with the poor is already in operation. They are already ruled like slaves, only they are not fed like slaves. The children are forcibly provided with a school, only they are not provided with a house officials give the most detailed domestic directions about the fire guard only they do not give the fire guard officials bring round the most stringent directions about the milk only they do not bring round the milk the situation is perhaps the most humorous in the whole history of oppression we force the black to dig but as a concession to him we do not give him a spade we compel him to cook but we consult his dignity so far as to refuse him a fire this state of things at least cannot conceivably endure we must either give the workers more property and liberty or we must feed them properly as we work them properly if we insist on sending the menu into them they will naturally send the bill into us this may possibly result it is not my purpose here to prove that it will in the drilling of the english people into hordes of humanely herded serfs and this again may mean the fading from our consciousness of all those elves and giant monsters and fantastics whom we are faintly beginning to feel and remember in the land if this be so the work of dickens may be considered as a great vision a vision as Swinburne said between a sleep and a sleep it can be said that between the gray past of territorial depression and the grey future of economic routine, the strange clouds lifted and we beheld the land of the living. Lastly, Dickens is even astonishingly right about Eugene Rayburn. So far from approaching him with not understanding a gentleman, the critic will be astonished at the accuracy with which he has really observed the worth and weakness of the aristocrat. He is quite right when he suggests that such a man has intelligence enough to despise the invitations which he has not the energy to refuse he is quite right when he makes eugene like mr Balfour, constantly right in argument even when he is obviously wrong in fact dickens is quite right when he describes eugene as capable of cultivating a sort of secondary and false industry about anything that is not profitable or pursuing with passion anything that is not his business He is quite right in making Eugene honestly appreciative of essential goodness in other people. He is quite right in making him really good at the graceful combination of satire and sentiment, both perfectly sincere. He is also right in indicating that the only cure for this intellectual condition is a violent blow on the head. David Copperfield The real achievement of the earlier part of David Copperfield lies in a certain impression of the little copperfield living in a land of giants. It is at once gargantuan in its fancy, and grossly vivid in its facts. Like Gulliver in the land of Brobdingnag, when he describes mountainous hands and faces filling the sky, bristles as big as hedges, or moles as big as mole-hills. To him parents and guardians are not Olympians, as in Mr. Kenneth Graham's clever book, Mysterious and Dignified dwelling upon a cloudy hill. Rather they are all the more visible, for being large. They come out all the closer, because they are colossal. Their queer features and weaknesses stand out large in a sort of gigantic domesticity, like the hairs and freckles of a Brobdingnagian. We feel the somber murdstone coming upon the house like a tall storm striding through the sky. We watch every pucker of Peggotty's pleasant face in its moods of flinty prejudice or whimsical hesitation. We look up and feel that Aunt Betsy in her garden gloves was really terrible, especially her garden gloves. But one cannot avoid the impression that as the boy grows larger, these figures grow smaller, and are not perhaps so completely satisfactory. Christmas Books and there is doubtless a certain poetic unity and irony in gathering together three or four of the crudest and most cocksure of the modern theorists with their shrill voices and metallic virtues under the fullness and the sonorous sanity of christian bells but the figures satirized in the chimes cross each other's path and spoil each other in some degree the main purpose of the book was a protest against that impudent and hard-hearted utilitarianism which arranges the people only in rows of men, or even in rows of figures. It is a flaming denunciation of that strange mathematical morality which was twisted, often unfairly out of Bentham and Mill, a morality by which each citizen must regard himself as a fraction, and a very vulgar fraction. Though the particular form of this insolent patronage is changed, this revolt and rebuke is still a value, and it may be wholesome for those who are teaching the poor to be provident. Doubtless it is a good idea to be provident, in the sense that providence is provident, but that should mean being kind, and certainly not being cold. The cricket on the hearth, though popular, I think with many sections on the great army of Dickensians, cannot be spoken of in any such abstract or serious terms it is a brief domestic glimpse it is an interior it must be remembered that dickens was fond of interiors as such he was like a romantic tramp who should go from window to window looking in at the parlors he had that solid indescribable delight in the mere solidity and neatness of funny little humanity in its funny little houses like dolls houses to him every house was a box a christmas box in which a dancing human doll was tied up in bricks and slates, instead of strings and brown paper. He went from one gleaming window to another, looking in at the lamplit parlours. Thus he stood for a little, while looking in at this cosy if commonplace interior of the carrier and his wife. But he did not stand there very long. He was on his way to quainter towns and villages. Already the plants were sprouting upon the balcony of Miss Tox, and the great wind was rising that flung mr pecksniff against his own front door the end of part 3 of the introduction end of section 2